You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, exists to improve healthcare in America. We want to make care better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. If you're a fan of this podcast or you have feedback, write to us anytime at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. On this episode of Inside Healthcare, we'll hear from two healthcare innovators. One developed a unique yet powerful approach towards resolving historic gaps in health equity. The other champions artificial intelligence as a key solution in the drive towards streamlined, patient-centered care. And both of them are featured speakers at NCQA's 2023 Quality Talks event, set for May 3rd of this year in Washington, D.C. More on that later. But first, Enzinga Harrison, M.D., is co-founder and chief medical officer of Eleanor Health, a tech-enabled population-based provider of comprehensive, whole-person, substance use disorder care and mental health care. She's a vocal advocate and activist, placing emphasis on the healthcare system's responsibility to incorporate trauma-informed interventions aimed at addressing the harms of racism and marginalization faced by many communities in this country. Dr. Harrison is also board-certified in both adult general psychiatry and addiction medicine. Additionally, she serves as vice chair for the Board of Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform Incorporated, a national organization she co-founded. Dr. Harrison serves on the executive advisory board of the newly formed SAMHSA African American Behavioral Health Center of Excellence. And she is clinical advisor to Health in Her Hue, a platform designed to link black women to culturally competent healthcare providers. I started our conversation by asking Dr. Harrison to explain one of her most profound concepts, that racism can be considered and treated as an addiction. So if we take the very broad definition of addiction as a behavior that we continue to engage in despite negative consequences, and if we take the concept out of the individual person to a societal concept, then I think we could all agree that racism is a societal behavior that we continue to engage in despite negative consequences. And so we can think about the negative consequences of racism from health disparities to the ultimate consequence, which is death, to um, lack of social upper mobility, to financial disparities, to wealth disparities, to housing disparities, um, and all of the different ways that racism impacts the lives of those um, affected by it. And so if we take that broader concept of addiction, then yes, you can think about racism as an addiction. And then what that does is give us all of the tools we know for managing addiction become available to be ideas for how we approach our management of racism. So if we're dealing with reviewing this uh, pathologically, um, 
what would be considered the origins of racism? Before we can try to find a, a solution, I'm, I'm sure you want to dig deeper to try to figure out where all of this comes from. So what? how would you phrase the, the origins of racism in terms of a behavioral health issue? Yeah. So um, exactly the same way I would addiction, right? So and any other chronic condition that we deal with. So when we think about um, the biopsychosocial framework, it tell us, tells us that conditions of illness develop for biological reasons, for psychological reasons, for social reasons. I actually encourage people to even broaden that framework to be cultural political. So biopsychosocial, cultural, political factors influence whether we develop an illness. And so if we're thinking about racism in the framework of addiction or an illness, biological reasons that we have racism is because our brain is neurobiologically wired to protect our own species. That means people who look like us, right? And even within the species. So we are actually biologically wired we're biologically wired to categorize and make quick decisions. That's a survival mechanism, right? You see a tiger, you don't want to be like, oh, what does this tiger sentiment look like? And we're like, no, you need to run, right? Like you need to judge that tiger immediately and run. And so those biological um, pathways put us at risk for discrimination and racism psychologically, we have all been raised and cultivated, those of us who came up in the United States, in systems of racism, social, culturally, politically, those systems are actually built into the infrastructure of the way housing, education, healthcare, legal, wealth, et cetera, banking work. And so the same way we have biopsychosocial, cultural, political inputs to the development and maintenance of addiction, we have those same inputs into the development and maintenance of racism. How do we treat racism if if this is sort of the the underlying uh, way of looking at it, and uh, and, and especially in terms of self diagnosis? Mm -hmm. how, how do people realize when they're doing? Th is this a matter of slowing down, quieting yourself, listening to yourself, or what? What tips would you even give uh, for people? Yeah, I really love that you mentioned stress because there are really two different types of bias or in this case, two different types of racism. There's implicit bias, which is unconscious, is not necessarily motivated by negative intent, but results in behaviors that have negative impact. And then there's explicit bias, which is like, I don't like people like that. And I think people like that should not get ahead. And I am proactively making sure people like that don't get ahead, right? Explicit racism by its discrimination, marginalization is decreasing. It's becoming less acceptable, even though we certainly see a fair amount of it. It is becoming less acceptable in society. Implicit racism and bias moves completely separately from that. So you can actually be completely consciously um, all about equality and justice and still harbor implicit biases, exactly like you said, because we're trained into our beliefs and our perceptions by our life experiences. And so the first step is recognizing we have a problem. Um, and I think it's really important to recognize for yourself without judgment where your implicit biases lie. 
So I love the Harvard Implicit Association Test, I-18, is Project Implicit. You can find it on the net. They have like a, so many implicit bias tests that can measure your implicit bias against different groups, against Black people, um, LGBTQ people, immigrants, working mothers, thin people, short people, people with disabilities. Like they have this whole book of implicit tests where you can take the test and be like, okay, I didn't even realize I had implicit bias against this group. This is a cognitive behavioral strategy, right? Once you know you have that implicit bias, then you have the opportunity to choose how you behave. If you don't know you have the implicit bias, you actually act out on it without intention and unknowingly. So the first step is knowing and accepting if you're human, you have implicit bias because neurobiologically, that's the way the brain works. And so we don't have to judge ourselves for that. We just have to raise our awareness and then recognize that when we're at biggest risk for acting out on our implicit biases, when we're hungry, angry, lonely, tired. So I'm bringing in lots of like AA and addiction references since you teed up the conversation like that. Right. It's just, it's being human, but there's, there's things that you can do to improve yourself. Right. Yeah. Um, I want to ask in terms of uh, health equity uh, and here's a sentence for you as health equity gaps widen, as things get worse um, in disparities, behavioral health issues among disadvantaged populations increase. So where's that proportionalism coming from? Or how, how do you view that, that, the, the greater the disparities, the worse things are for behavioral health issues specifically. Yeah. So I was going to say um, it's bi-directional, but I actually want to evoke the image of a cycle. So the worse disparities get, the worse behavioral health um, needs in vulnerable and marginalized communities get, the worse disparities get the worse the needs get, right? Like it is a self-fulfilling prophecy, like the snowball rolling down the mountain. And the reason goes back to this biopsychosocial, cultural, political. Um, and so when we look at the inputs for health disparities, biologically, our life experiences, the traumas we experience, both chronic and acute, macro and micro, the lack of having needs met, um, the barriers to access to health and wealth and wellness all get translated into our DNA through epigenetics and epigenetics get passed on to the next generation. And so when we look at the biological input for chronic conditions, behavioral health conditions, including substance use disorders, other chronic conditions like hypertension, asthma, diabetes, et cetera, it's somewhere between 40 and 60% of our risk for developing those illnesses is coded in our DNA across the board, all those ones that I just listed. And so as we subject people to more adverse childhood experiences and less meeting of basic needs and instability of Maslow's hierarchy and lack of opportunity for forward progression, all of that gets coded in epigenetics that then loads the next generation with less resilience and more risk. And so we actually have a generationally compounding as our health disparities get worse, biologically, psychologically, 
systemically, social, culturally, politically, we actually carry those forward in a bigger way to the next generation. That's why it's so important to be doing what we can right now to intervene. So then tell me about health in her hue. Tell, tell me wh- what is it? And because it, it sounds like a, there's a straight line from what you were just talking about to uh, to this provider or this uh, service. Uh, so th- tell me about it, how it's related, how it's uh, different. Yeah, Health and Her Hue is a completely separate company from Eleanor Health. I um, am so proud to be clinical advisor uh, for co-founders, Ashley and Edwina, Howard University alum, um, just like myself. Health and Her Hue is a tech platform. So it's a tech platform that is designed to connect Black women and women of color to culturally relevant care, culturally sensitive providers. And so there's a provider training aspect. There's a clinical content and validation aspect. There's a connection and navigation aspect. Um, And so it's a relatively young country, I'm sorry, company that is really just making a beautiful impact for validating the invalidating experience that Black and Brown women have had in the healthcare system and enacting interventions to change that. So tell me about Eleanor Health. What what what's the mission? What makes it unique in in the space? Uh, is it would you consider it a, a, a tech company or a uh, a provider of um, services? At, what need uh, did you find um, needed to be uh, fulfilled by co-founding it? Yeah. So the answer is yes. We are a tech-enabled provider of um, health services for people with addiction. And so our mission is to help people affected by addiction live amazing lives. And we chose that mission very intentionally, not to be the best provider of addiction care, which we are and we will be, right? But that is not the mission because health goes beyond health care. And so when we say helping people affected by addiction live amazing lives, what does it mean to be affected by addiction? It's not just the person with the addiction. There are concentric circles to that family, to that community, to the whole country, right? What does it mean to live an amazing life? I, as your doctor, cannot define that for you. You have to define that for yourself. And so what we've built at Eleanor Health is a care model that is personalized, and stands in the autonomy of the individual, recognizing biopsychosocial, cultural, political impact on health and empowering our community members to address that. And then on the payment model side, um, we believe fee-for-service drives health and equity because 80% of what drives our health sits outside of what happens in a doctor's office. But the healthcare system is not responsible for paying for that 80%. And so you mentioned in the, the, the setup, our whole person care model, and you mentioned means mental and substance use disorder. It means substance use disorder, mental health, physical health, social drivers of health, life, meaning, and purpose, all of these things that fee-for-service codes don't pay for. And so we're transforming the payment mechanism as well to be one that allows us to take care of the whole person. Co-founder and chief medical officer of Eleanor Health, Dr. Nzinga Harrison. Again, we are pleased and proud to have her as a featured speaker at NCQA's upcoming 2023 Quality Talks event, as we are with our next incredible guest. Suchi Saria, PhD, 
is the founder and CEO of Bayesian Health and works at Johns Hopkins University, serving both as the John C. Malone Associate Professor and the Director of the Machine Learning, Artificial Intelligence, and Healthcare Lab. Dr. Saria stands firmly at the crossroads of artificial intelligence and modern medicine. Her research has pioneered the development of next-generation diagnostic and treatment planning tools that use statistical machine learning methods to individualize care. She is foremost in her expertise, having delivered numerous papers on healthcare's potential and practical use of AI, and led talks at NAM and NIH. She advises several Fortune 500 companies and has received funding from government entities including NIH, the FDA, and even DARPA. She's been on PBS too, so you might have seen her on TV. Now, our conversation here might get a little technical at times, and believe me, I am by no means a technologist or a statistician, but hopefully you'll see by the end of our chat how AI machine learning, and even chat GPT can soon propel us into a world of resolved equity disparities and improved patient-centered outcomes. First, what is meant by artificial intelligence? Yeah, the the field of AI started as um, scientists coming together from many disparate fields to be able to build machines that behave intelligently and showed intelligent behavior like humans do, can reason, can perceive, can sense, can act, can plan. And that's the origin of the field. It started, uh, you know, uh, really started to like gather momentum around 1960s, um, has been an active field, has gone through many, many uh, waves of um, different types of approaches to build AI. Um, historical uh, types of AI systems uh, relied uh, very heavily on coding human expertise. So thinking about how humans would do the task and then experts would come together and figure out how can we program machines that are mimicking humans to do the task exactly the way the humans do it. So in this example, you know, humans would write out a flow chart of like when you're here, then turn right then once you've turned right, then go turn left, much like, you know, turn by turn traffic guidance um, for solving a problem. And then in the late 90s, 90s, late 90s, 2000s, what happened was this emergence of this new approach, which relied on learning from data. So instead of actually telling the system exactly what to do, it was instead teaching them the system how to learn, right? Much like you would teach babies to learn, right? And if you can teach a man to fish, it's much more valuable than giving them a fish. And so in this example, uh, uh, machine learning is sort of this bigger paradigm by which we design statistical algorithms or algorithms that leverage uh, math and stats and optimization information theory to be able to learn from real world messy scenarios. And um, almost like you would teach a baby, you know, like show them many images of a cat and a dog and then try to help it learn how to distinguish what separates a cat from a dog or being able to play a game and you get a reward at the end, you win or you lose and you start planning backwards as you get an adult about like, what are the right strategies to help you win? So I'd say it like this, if you have a, a, a computer or something software based that is there to operate a machine, you can either give it a series of commands and maybe conditional if then kinds of commands for it to do a simple, straightforward task and to repeat the same task with no variation. 
But with AI and with machine learning, we're trying to imply something that is algorithmically based in order to have a level of intuition, intuitive learning that the computer that's behind the machines, but that the computer, if it's just a computer as well, um, can somehow build a, a sense and a, a, a bank of intuition. And then after that, you can feed it the similar data as much as you want to, and it will continue to understand what kind of data it, it's getting, and even to be able to parse it out independently. Is it? Is am I in the in the right ballpark? Yeah, close. Um, so I don't love using words that we use to describe humans to describe. You know, this is a point of um, contention in the field at the moment because when we use words like intuition, sensing, in a way when we start attributing human-like properties to the machine, then we start thinking it's a sentient being. It can start doing all sorts of things. It can start creating itself. It starts having will. And the reality is just a pile of maps. And so in the example that you're referring to, um, think of it like context. Once it, can, once it can learn from data, it can learn extremely elaborate details about the context. And so its ability to learn nuanced rules based upon very elaborate context is what allows us to, um, to take into account variation, right? So when humans are sitting and kind of summarizing rules, we have limited patience. We also have limited memory. We also don't you know, think through details in the same level of granularity as millions of real world data points. So what we're often coming up with are pretty coarse rules, right? Like I think of our population health guidelines. They're often pretty coarse, like it works pretty well in the majority case, maybe like 40, 50% case, but it's extremely bad at accounting for variability. But once we're able to learn from data, we can learn all sorts of very detailed human context that allows them to learn rules that are much more nuanced. And that's what makes these uh, systems so much more valuable because they can account for context and coming up with you know, new rules to operate. I want to ask you about Bayesian health. And I I can't help. I want to start by asking you conceptually about why it's called Bayesian health. And this is a shot in the dark for me. I, I apologize. I'm not a statistician. Um, but let me start by saying uh, there was a an English statistician and also Presbyterian minister named Thomas Bayes. He was British. Uh, That's right. Lived in the late 1700s. And um, he developed a, a theorem, whether or not he published it, but that's known as Bayes' theorem. And from there, they have some an idea called Bayes' probability. Uh, so tell me a little bit about Bayes' theorem, Bayes' probability, and how, how does it connect? Let's say, how does it connect to healthcare, or how would you connect it to healthcare? Yeah. So um, when we look at decision making, how you know optimal decision makers make decisions uh, mathematically. Um, you know, you're often looking at all the data you have thus far to make an assessment of what you think is going to happen, like you forecast based on everything you know, what you think the reality is going to be. And then as new data comes in and you can get many disparate kinds of data, some that you trust more than others, you're able to then integrate that data and update your estimate of what, you know, what your forecast is. And this ability to continually incorporate new kinds of data and thinking about veracity, validity of different types of data and incorporating into update your estimate is a Bayesian way of reasoning. 
And, you know, in healthcare, where we're both inundated with data and making some of the most important decisions, Bayesian Health was all about giving our clinicians, our care teams, where they're having to make these very, very important decisions often, but don't have the time to be able to incorporate all the data that exists. And the question was, how do we give them this way of, you know, incorporating data at the fingertips, especially in some of these decisions that are very hard and they often struggle with. So that's sort of how the came Bayesian, the term Bayesian health and the name Bayesian health came to be. There's a term algorithmic bias that uh, has been discussed on this show as well. It's simply the nature of the way something that's been coded is trying to parse out information and some data gets dropped and people get lost along the way. Patients and patient data gets lost along the way. And then you have that can lead along with other things to uh, healthcare disparities. So how, how can your, um, your approach uh, help to resolve these issues? Absolutely. So let me quickly summarize what is the issue. We have a huge amount of data. We're learning from this data, right? If we learn in a naive fashion, there are a number of silly things we can do, in which case algorithms can propagate bias. And Propagate bias means perhaps lead to decisions which leads to inequitable care. Maybe they're more likely to prescribe certain treatments to whites than certain minority groups. And so when does this happen? There are lots of scenarios where this can happen. Like one very simple example that we don't realize today is human practice today is very biased because human clinical practice is biased and they're generating data as a byproduct of their practice. If a system goes and simply mimics human practice, then they're going to propagate the bias that already exists. And you don't want that. So when we're learning these kinds of algorithmic systems, what we can do, which is pretty cool and fascinating in an area where I've spent a fair amount of work, is designing algorithms that correct for biases. You can essentially, um, let's imagine, like, you know, when you look at your data, you realize that in your data, maybe whites are more likely to get follow-on care compared to Black patients. You can essentially um, unlearn that bias when you're learning these kinds of algorithms by basing, you know, and there are a number of mitigation strategies. But the cool thing is now you can fix with these kinds of AI-driven decision aids. Let's say a care team upon discharge is making recommendations for follow-on care. Their traditional practice might have guided them to give follow-on care more likely to white patients over black patients with a decision aid that's more uh, focused on objective data like labs and vitals and, you know, clinical history, they can now start making recommendations, which essentially, you know, undoes a bit of that bias because it sort of prompts the care team to consider, hey, maybe this person needs follow-on care and here's why. And that now suddenly corrects things that they were implicitly doing. So tell me uh, your view on, on algorithmic bias. Does it, does it really exist? And how much of an issue do you see it uh, in, in AI learning? So as an example of where you might apply this, and you know, there are examples everywhere, but um, sepsis, it's leading cause of hospital deaths. Um, it's, you know, your, our listeners know exactly what sepsis is and why it's dangerous. Mortality rates still for severe sepsis septic shock look like 30%, so one in three. I lost my nephew to sepsis. Um, so this, this is all too personal and I know it, know it very well. And um, in a condition like sepsis, what's really interesting is that we know the, um, if you can identify sepsis early, we know what we do to, we know what we can do often to uh, 
reduce progression, prevent progression, and uh, improve outcomes. But the problem is identifying sepsis early is hard. So the way uh, Bayesian comes to this is in real time, when a patient comes in, in the ED, there's all this data we're already collecting. This data gives you early, shows you kind of what current patient status in the scenario where this patient's been to a health system before. We even have data from prior encounters. Using all that encounter, you can get a pretty good sense in many scenarios if the patient is at risk. And now as they're going through the hospital, you know, through, from the ED as new lab data collected, new data collected around uh, context of like how they're doing, how they're progressing, the system basically updates its assessment of this patient's risk for sepsis, given everything else that's going on for, uh, to this patient. And what we found is that using this approach, we're able to detect sepsis significantly earlier than standard of care. In fact, we showed in a very, very large study on patients who died in the hospital with sepsis, nearly 5.7 hour earlier detection time than current standard of care. So current, uh, you know, the time when physicians were recognizing it and ordering antibiotics, which is one of the key treatment treatments, you know, when physicians suspect sepsis. And the follow-up can be less generic than it's been. So oh, because yeah, you have absolutely. so much more data that's in, in the EHRs that are finally being incorporated into individualized care and the patient-centered care, that if somebody's being discharged, that instead of saying, oh, well, they had this these two symptoms and here's what we give everybody with those two symptoms, not thinking that they might have behavioral health care issues that would be you know not mitigated by taking these things. And- absolutely. So it's 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 both less biased and more effective. And it's more effective because it's more personalized. It's more dependent on what the patient actually needs and where they benefit. Just like another really simple example, there's a study that showed, it was done across 24 US hospitals where they showed black patients are less likely to receive guideline compliant care for sepsis. So interesting, one might wonder why. Now, what we showed with our work in sepsis with Bayesian is when we were able to implement the platform and this platform just kind of operates within the electronic health record of a system, health system. And so in real time, it's monitoring patients and providing these real time nudges for frontline care teams to identify patients at risk for sepsis and declining due to uh, sepsis. What we were able to show is across different groups using objective data the system was equally performant across these different groups, which is very exciting because now you can systematize care and standardize care. So you're less likely to give guideline compliant care to certain minority groups. And so that was something that was exceptionally. So I think there's so many opportunities done right. We're not only able to make healthcare more effective, but also more equitable. Interestingly, um, when you're able to detect it, you can also sort of, by taking into account all this context, you're also able to do it much more accurately. So today's systems that people often deploy for trying to do early sepsis detection have very, very high false alerting rates. Often because they're starting from human encoded rules of what sepsis looks like. So they'll say, you know, two out of these four um, physiologic parameters or labs being anomalous means this patient is at risk for sepsis. Research has shown when you look at these particular rules that humans have encoded, 95% of patients at some point during the hospital stay meet these criteria. 
So what you end up with is basically systems that are alerting and crying wolf all the time. So people are not really listening. But when you're able to employ something like machine learning and AI to learn from data, you can learn far more nuanced rules that can identify both patients early, but also accurately who are at risk for progressing to severe sepsis and septic shock. And that's an example um, of, uh, you know, example area where, you know, this kind of approach is extremely powerful. It's a, it's a great example. Uh, and, it, you know, leading to another question about the concept of hospital at home. So uh, we talk about remote care and all the elements of remote care, tools that can be used, hardware and software that can be used for remote care. Um, but if you add all of it up together, you can start talking about uh, a healthcare model of hospital at home. Uh, and we actually, we even have one or two speakers coming up at Quality Talks this year who are not just supporting a hospital at home, but they're adamant against brick and mortar uh, the hospital buildings of any kind. Why are you spending money building a building? Why are you worried about getting into a which neighborhood I'm going to put it in? None of that is, you don't need to do any of that. So talk a little bit about uh, AI and how AI can contribute to promoting the idea of hospital home to, to make these things a reality. Yeah, ultimately, if you really think about it, um, we, we're collecting data on patients and individuals frequently, right? This is, you know, when you're looking at patients with neurologic diseases or neurologic uh, syndromes, you know, much of, um, like for instance, uh, one of the areas we worked on extensively was patients with Parkinson's disease. Turns out, you know, the everyday life is giving far more information into their disease state and wellness and how they're progressing compared to their clinic visits. And so more broadly to me, uh, we're now moving into this new age where because of electronic infrastructure, we're capturing data everywhere, far more than we did almost a decade ago. And that opens up this possibility of understanding an individual human, their health and their disease state by stitching together data longitudinally in a far more detailed way than we've had the ability to do. That combined with machine learning and AI allows us to learn patterns across millions of individuals and subgroups of individuals just like that individual to start learning early signs of progression, whether or not this patient will respond to particular therapy, you know, how they're going to respond, anticipating adverse events, which allows us to move from a proactive, you know, uh, into a more of a proactive system of care, which is both better for patients, better for caregivers, because it leads to less burnout, better experience, lower cost. So it's all of the things that we wanted, but not had the ability to do. I mean, hospital at home wouldn't have been possible if we didn't have the ability to scale our, uh, you know, our ability to digitally monitor patients. If we couldn't collect data, monitor, provide 24-7 surveillance, and be able to use the data to you know, provide a high-quality, robust set of second pair of eyes, we wouldn't be able to scale the ability to give that level of, you know, you can have a, you know, if you want to have a three-star Michelin, uh, three Michelin star uh, multi-course meal, it's very hard to have, you know, it's very, very expensive to expect that to occur, you know, at your home for every every person in the country if they want that, right? It's, it's just a lot, but we want our healthcare to feel like that. 
we want the best healthcare it's not sort of a thing that's a luxury it's really something we absolutely need and but for that to happen we then also need a way to scale it and i think this is where ai and you know high quality um intelligence second pair of eyes makes that possible founder and ceo of bayesian health dr suchi saria helping bring us all closer to complete and comprehensive care wherever we are so again come and meet dr saria and dr harrison at ncqa's 2023 quality talks more to come on that event later in the show Welcome again now to our Fast Facts segment, where we provide important information for you to share with colleagues and possibly incorporate into your work. April is National Minority Health Month, and this time around, I'm sharing some stark stats on asthma, another difficult yet common condition that, like so many others, adversely affects minority populations. This data, which specifically addresses disparities for African-American populations, comes from the Department of Health and Human Services quoting the CDC, with numbers accurate to a few years ago. As of 2019, non-Hispanic African Americans were 30% more likely to have asthma than non-Hispanic whites. In 2020, non-Hispanic blacks were almost three times more likely to die from asthma-related causes than the non-Hispanic white population. And the death rate in 2020 for non-Hispanic black children was more than seven and a half times that of non-Hispanic white children. But why such disparities for asthma, especially among minority children? Well, CDC researchers note that children exposed to secondhand tobacco smoke are at increased risk for acute lower respiratory tract infections, which can at the least weaken the lungs. Now, there's something called cotinine. Cotinine is a chemical byproduct of nicotine found in elevated levels in blood samples taken from children exposed to secondhand smoke. The elevated presence of cotinine in the blood is a biomarker used to demonstrate and indicate high levels of exposure to tobacco smoke. NCQA has an element in our HEDIS measure set called asthma medication ratio, or AMR. This measure assesses adults and children 5 to 64 years of age who were identified as having persistent asthma and had a ratio of controller medications to total asthma medications of 0.5 or greater during the measurement year. So you can find out more about asthma in African American populations as well as our AMR measure in the links included in this episode's description. If you work in healthcare, and if every other word you say throughout the day is quality, 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 you'll want to be at Quality Talks. NCQA's annual Quality Talks event hits the DC Capitol Hilton on May 3rd, 2023. 10 inspiring speakers each get 15 minutes on stage, one after the other, just enough time to inform and inspire about their work. From digitalization to patient-centered care, from health equity to hospital at home, 
These are talks you won't want to miss. And yeah, you can register for our live stream and watch it uh, from the comfort of wherever you happen to be. But considering how the speakers will each then get their own speaker salon room to chat with attendees after their talks and to network with you one-on-one, -on -one, really nothing beats being there in person. Seating is limited, so register now. For more information or to view speaker presentations from past years, go to qualitytalks.org. NCQA's 2023 Quality Talks. You won't want to miss it. While I'm at it, let me start the buzz on NCQA's annual Health Innovation Summit. For three days beginning October 23rd, 2023, this will be the place to connect with quality and care delivery innovators. Enjoy our speakers, panels, training sessions, and an exhibit showcase floor. By the way, it's in Orlando, Florida this year, so if you like the sun and the surf, then you should head on down. Stay updated on the latest Health Innovation Summit details. Go to ncqasummit.com right now for more information. As we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we ask you now for your thoughts on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime, and be sure to include Inside Healthcare, those words, in the subject line. Now, if you're coming up empty with something to say, here's our question for this episode. If you could program or train a piece of software to handle any part of your workflow, what would you have it do? Think about it, then tell us about it. And if you have a comment, a suggestion, an idea for a guest on our show, or maybe you'd like to be that guest, just email us and let us know. Communications at ncqa.org. And be sure to write Inside Healthcare in the subject line. And we hope to hear from you soon. That's it for episode 103 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Thanks for joining us. This episode's done, but there are plenty that came before it for you to explore and investigate. You can find us at blog.ncqa.org or find us on any Apple or Google streaming app. Whether you download the show or you stream it, if you find us, then follow us. And spread the word. Help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. If you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter. You'll get video promos for this show to share with your friends and colleagues. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to grow. On behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast. <music>